here. Let's be talking about the, the Torah portion. I love how very practical and, and how very focused on both mercy and accountability. Because, you know, like we do today, actually, I wonder if, you know, back in the day when the nation was getting started, they read these things and put them into place. But it's kind of like we do today. You know, you damage them for somebody. You, you, have to you reimburse it. Right. Yeah, you have to. You do that, you know. It was interesting with the women, though, as far as um, how they send out if you sold your daughter into slavery. Or, you, know, you know, it's that's such a bad translation, though. Because it, it, that's that's the part where it talks about her growing up and if they decide they don't want her. Okay, this is another one of those times where lack of understanding Jewish custom combined with words being used for multiple things really puts a ridiculously ugly spin on it. Because um, the in the rabbinic notes on that, it talks about how. This, what it's talking about is uh, if a father has an opportunity to arrange a marriage right. for a daughter who's younger than marriage age, okay. and and it says this should not ha- this should not be uh, a, a common thing. Right. This should, but it's to basically if you're if you're living out in the middle of nowhere. Right. And and your uncle, who's well-to-do, is traveling from one place to another and stays overnight in your house and has his son, who's a little bit older than your daughter, mm-hmm. and, and the opportunity comes up for you to arrange a marriage where you know this is family, they'll take care of her, this is a good man, an honest man, a man who can actually provide for her, then it was basically an arranged marriage where she would go with them because they were not local, and be raised in their house according to their customs and, and, and practices so that she would be ready to become a wife. And then the protection afforded her if they decide as she gets older, no, we want to arrange a marriage with our son and somebody else to, prevent, to protect her in situations like that where they want to back out. Right, because they said if you want to back out, then he still have, she's still a bride. Right. He's, he's still, he has she has all the rights. Mm-hmm. Even yeah, because she has the right to children. She has, she has that standing now. Right. And so the idea of it being a slave is just, it's very ugly, and it puts a very ugly yeah. p- picture on what's happening. But it's not like it's an ideal situation. Right. But, but let's say let's say you live because just to put it into modern times, let's say that you're really struggling with poverty and you've got lots of kids and you live in an inner city, you know, slum building, and you you end up in contact with you know a rich relative who offers to take your child in and raise them up, and when they get older, you know, they'll be. Let's say for our modern sensibilities, it's your second or third cousin, so that there's no, you know, two-headed babies at risk. But it's it's one of those things where, if as a, if as if the father believes that this is the best opportunity to change his child's situation, it gives him the opportunity to do that with protection built in for her. And and that's what's so awesome, you know. It's not. 
the father has this right and the father has that right. And then if they don't want her, the men have this right. It's about protecting the daughter. It's all about you can't take advantage of her. You can't make these promises and then mistreat her. You, you know, because they're, when the law was violated, they would have recourse. They would be able to go, to go before the judges and say, you know, hey, this is the arrangement and this is what happened. So, yeah, the idea of selling your daughter into slavery is repugnant because it is. But <laughs> it's, it's such a horribly bad translation of, of the picture of what's happening. Um, yeah. <laughs> well, when I started, you know, a lot of what I, when I started reading things and going, this cannot possibly mean this. Because this flies in the face of everything I know about the character of God. So I'm going to withhold judgment until I get a chance to study it a little more. And then when I would read the rabbinic commentary, there were still sometimes things where I will go, you know, okay, I'm going to give a lot of latitude to the fact that that was a different day and age. But that's still better than what I was told it was. I know. You know? You know yeah. And I know that now, you know, since being, uh, being here, I know that now. Yeah. You're like, no. Yeah. Yeah, it, it does. It's horrible. But then it's like, and no. We, all we know, of, I mean, all I knew, especially when I first started reading about slavery, is slavery in America. Right. A lot of places are not as cruel as, right. as it was here. And, in, and it's... You go by that release them yeah. time. And it's very, you know, the majority of the time that it's translated slave, it really means indentured servant. Which, which may, may, I mean, not that that's a great situation necessarily to be in because you're still you're still at risk for somebody treating you wrong which is why most of the rules about it are about how you're allowed to treat them you know or not treat them um you know sometimes when you're in a bad situation the opportunity to be an indentured servant is your best chance to change it you know it's how a lot of people got to this country i will work for you for seven years if you'll pay my my transit to the new country with you. Um, you know, and a lot of times the way someone ended up, because you're talking about with the stealing, yeah. the way someone would end up in someone's home is, let's say, let's say your nephew went out and stole something right. and couldn't pay for it when he was right. caught. Mm-hmm. Then your, you and, and your husband would have the opportunity to go in and... Yeah. Basically, you would pay his debt, and then he would owe you work in your home. Now, the goal was, I mean, it's a very practical, you have been redeemed, you need to, to you know, it's, it's, it's different than a handout. You know, people don't want handouts. It lets you work to pay back what was, what was given you. Right. But more than that, the idea behind it is that someone who's in a position, you know, if you think about what we learned about how just some of the customs and and ideas at that time from Job, someone who's in a position to bail you out is living rightly and doing, you know, doing things. um, That's the expectation. So... By them being able, being able to pay for your debt and you going to live in your home, 
they're, it, the idea of them being a master was that they were your Torah master, mm-hmm. that they were supposed to be teaching you how to live rightly, and then when you had finished your service, they would give you resources to start over, and you would get a chance to go do it on your own, which is why there was the option if the, if the slave didn't want to leave. Yes. Because at a certain yeah. point, I mean, if you think about it, how many people commit crimes to go back in jail? Because when they're in jail, everything is structured and they're not able to, you know, they've learned how to function there. They're institutionalized and they know how to get along and they know they're going to have food and they know they're going to have a bed and they're going to have a cover over their head. And so it's terrifying to them to be out. So if you think about that, if somebody, may, you know, has has come to the realization through their experience that they know they're going to go back to their way of living before, or they know they're going to fall in with the wrong crowd again, or they know it's just not in them to live the way you've been teaching them, and they really want to continue living that way, they had the option of saying, you know what, I don't want my freedom. I want to stay with you. I want to stay in your home. Right. And, and that's what that was about. You know, it was... Yeah, I saw one. I was reading one about that. The guy's a slave. But if he takes a wife, uh-huh. um, at the end of his time, the set of years or whatever, he would go free, but then the children would be of the master, yeah. and they're raised in a different translation, and I think it was because the, the master owns the slave. The slave is like... Well, if and I think there, there, there's an issue of... Um, I suspect there's an issue of a variety of cultural things going on mm-hmm. because when they when they would go to you know when they would go to war and and the people would come and, and be with them if if that person wanted to become part of the community and converted to Judaism and left behind their pagan ways then then they were given their freedom and became part of the community so if it's talking about them still being a slave, then it would mean that that they were just, you know, they were living there and working for him and, and, and didn't have rights in the community. Okay. So it may be that your indentured servant marries a pagan from, you know, who's come to you uh, out, of, out of a conflict with another, another area. Um, she doesn't have rights, uh, full rights as a as a member of Israel. So she doesn't have rights of wife. She doesn't have rights of of right. being let go. So I, sus- I I suspect I haven't studied it enough to say for sure, but I suspect yeah. there's some kind of multiple issues coming together for them to for that to be the conclusion. But he did have a choice. He yeah, he go, could stay. Could go by himself. Right. But if he say, I love my master this way, by the way, he say, I love my master, I love my wife, I love my children, uh-huh. I want to stay with them. Right. And then it's when they put the, right. the, the earring. Yeah. yeah. And then we were slave forever. Yeah. yeah. And yet, knowing that if someone became, you know, if someone joined the community yeah. and became a free person within the community, so to me, that has to be that he's choosing to stay with the pagan wife who doesn't have the rights. Right. And, and, you know, but it's, it's one of those areas where I think, you know, I'd like to study that some more and have a better understanding of that 
but it's not one of the issues that I deal with people asking about on a regular basis. So it kind of has fallen into the, I really should get to that, you know, but, but I think, I think that the, for me, the thing I step back and, and remember is that there is a cultural context going on that I don't fully understand. And so it's one of those things that I'm able to go, there are parts of that that are troubling, but I know enough about the parts around it and related to it to know that at some point I will get, you know, when I do study it out, it's going to make a lot more sense. Oh, well, um, I don't know what of the day eliminate learning of the well, and you know that's what that's what the original Protestants um, and especially the Puritans did. I mean, they were Sabbath keepers. They went. They most of the laws that they set up were based on were definitely based on um, God's laws. Unfortunately. They had it filtered through a couple of different language translations, and and that I, you know, there a harshness came to it that was part of their culture, you know. And the original, they they didn't they, ironically, even knowing Messiah, they didn't have the understanding of grace in the law, and so there was. Um, it was a lot harsher. And and I think that a lot of that had to do with that whole Protestant work ethic and that coming to the new world survivor kind of thing. Um, it's, you know, the, the first Puritans, the entire second generation of them in the faith in this country, the ones who came here, because it was so oppressive. But at the same time, if you think what kind of a person does it take to leave one country and go to another and survive and start a whole new community, and and sometimes, like kind of like we talked about, you know, the, the people who got who who were ready to leave Israel or were ready to leave Egypt weren't the people who were ready to go into Israel, and so I, I think that there is a part of that also that that the Puritans who were ready to leave England and come here and survive and make those towns and, and actually allow there to be a second generation were of a certain stock and mentality that the second generation was like, I don't think so. Yeah. <laughs> so. Where's the one showing me? She was, um, last night we were listening to a teacher teaching by this Chinese man. Mm-hmm. And we all sitting there in May, and he started talking about the time. He was saying that the Chinese history is very, very old. And he said thousands of years ago, back. Mm-hmm. And he started talking about what the Chinese, who they worship during the time before those different dynasties. Mm-hmm. One was the one was the Daya, Daya something. The first one, and then the other one was the one the Yang and the, the, the yeah, and the Tang and the between that time and and went back, yeah, went back, went all the way back with it, and then the way they're reading and their writing is there is is very old too, and the way he was reading this part of um, the certain name Chang Chang Wan or something Mm -hmm. like that, he started writing. And his writing sounds just like Genesis. 
it was by talking about the creation. It was talking about a supreme and one God. Not many right, not right. The now. Right, so right. And a lot of their current time. religion was in response to missionaries coming and wanting to keep the West out. Ah, so, okay. so kind of like modern Judaism is a reaction to modern Christianity is a reaction to modern Judaism yeah. is a. So, um, yeah, it is very. It's very interesting, and. But it's like. The people are so far removed from it. They yeah. Right. It or know it. Or right. It wasn't passed down. You know? Right. Right. It's it's kind of like it's interesting. We were at a at a, a planetarium show about the constellations of Egypt, and they were talking about you know the Egyptian gods, and it was really interesting that you could see the first family in their gods. There was. There was the mother and the father and the sons, one who killed the other, and, and you know, but these were their gods and and their traditions, you know, and and even going to Daniel as we as we talk about Daniel um, again today, um, is it, I think Zoroastrianism. If you if you hear people talk about how that was the first organized religion kind of thing, Zoroastrianism um, comes from Babylon. And you can see the influences of, of Daniel and his, you know, his prophecies, because that's part of what they studied, his, his dreams and his readings. And that was part of their, their foundation. Um, that's where a lot of people believe that the three, you know, the wise, wise men from the East came from that, that religious tradition. And that's why they knew, that's why they knew the prophecies about a king to come. That's why they knew the prophecies about the different, you know, like we're going to go a little farther into today, the different civilizations that would come and go, the different kingdoms that would come and go because they had been studying Daniel's prophecy, you know, Daniel's dreams and his visions. And you okay? Are you okay? You do not look okay. What's wrong? What's wrong, sweetheart? What's wrong? It's Auntie Pie now. She come with her head down. Aww, it's okay. She loves you. She loves you. Oh. Hey, I'm sitting with the so we'll go, let's go ahead and, and jump into Daniel with his, another dream that he's going to have. And uh, do you want to go out and do the study with them? I think, yeah, they're, oh, they might be in back here. They're back here. They're doing, they're doing a lesson. You can go and join them. So the last dream that Daniel had, he had at the end of the first year of King Belshazzar. And now we hear in the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, after that which appeared to me at the first. So he's saying this is, a, this is different. I saw in the vision, and when I saw, I was in Susa, the citadel. So... We also encounter Susa in Esther. That's where that's where the king is. Um, 
because we're back with Babylon now. We haven't gotten to Persia like we did at the end of the court situation, the court stories. Um, so he's in Susa, the citadel, which is in the province of Elam. And I saw in the vision, and I was at the Ulai Canal. I raised my eyes and saw, and behold, a ram standing on the bank of the canal. It, too, it had two horns, and both horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. I saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward. No beast could stand before him, and there was no one who could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased and became great. So kind of like we did last week, I want to go and look at kind of what our, um, what our Rashi's, you know, the commentary here in the, in the, um, commission. He says, uh, he points out the, the previous dream that this is after was in the first year of Belshazzar. This is in the third year. And, um, you know, he's beside the river Ulai, and it had horns. So the horns, uh, the two horns symbolizing the kingdom of Persia and Medea. So if you remember the Medea that was in charge for one year, followed by Persia that was in charge for a long time. And that's why um, in the last dream there was the smaller and the larger. And, and, and so this is the kingdom of Persia and Medea. Um, the higher than the other one is the kingdom of Persia, which was greater than the kingdom of Medea, for Medea existed for only one year. Um, and in the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, of the seed of Medea, and um, that is the only year that is ascribed to Medea in holy writings. So that's why they understand that, that Medea was only, in, only running things in Babylon for one year the one year. So he saw the ram go westward, northward, and southward. No one could stand before it. Um, and and so, so that ram, you know, being the kingdom of Persia. And I was pondering, behold, a he-goat came from the west over the surface of the entire earth. And... Oh, it is. Okay, that's the next. Sorry, got to turn the page. Oh, I know, I got to turn the page. Uh, as I was considering, behold, a male goat came from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground. This is Daniel's dream. Yeah, in the third year of Belshazzar. Okay. Um, so the goat had a conspicuous, oh, it, his west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground. Um, and, and Rashi says he resembled one skipping in the air. Uh, he came to the, wait, and the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. Um, so conspicuous, you know, it was large, it was visible to the eye. It was a very obvious thing. He came to the ram with the two horns, which I had seen standing on the bank of the canal, and he ran at him in his powerful wrath. I saw him come close to the ram, and he was enraged against him and struck the ram and broke his two horns. And the ram had no power to stand before him, but he cast him down to the ground and trampled on him. There was no one who could rescue the ram from his power, 
Then the goat became exceedingly great. But when he was strong, the great horn was broken. And instead of it, there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. Um, Let's see. Trying to scan over the commentary over there. Out of one of them, so if we know that horns are kingdoms, we've got the ram with Medea and Persia, and then we've got this goat coming from the west that has one obvious great horn, and he tramples on the ram, and then his horn breaks open and splits into four horns. Um, Out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land, the glorious land always being Israel. It grew great even to the host of heaven, and some of the host and some of the stars it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. It became great, even as great as the prince of the host. And the regular burnt offering was taken away from him, and the place of his sanctuary was overthrown. So, the little horn, um, Rashi says, is the kingdom of Titus that emerged. Small and despised kingdom, as he calls it, um, and in Obadiah, he says, you are very despised when talking about, about the kingdom of Titus. And the south is Egypt, south of the land of Israel. And the coveted land, the land of Israel, um, you know, the beautiful land, uh, as Jeremiah 3.19 calls it, an inheritance of the beauty of hosts and na- of nations. And it grew until the host of heaven and cast down to the ground some of the host and the stars and trampled them. Uh, It says, there Israel who were uh, compared to the stars, which we know from Joseph's dream. He talks about the stars. And until the prince of the host, it grew, and through him the daily sacrifice was removed. Okay, so talking, Rashi says it's talking about the temple, which is the house of the Holy One, blessed be he, prince of the host. He blasphemed the Holy One, um, And through his troops and his armies, which he sent to Jerusalem, the daily sacrifice was abolished, and he sent there Nero, Caesar, his general, and our rabbis relate in um, Gitin and in Gorion. So so that's who went went there. Um, And the time will be uh, given for the daily sacrifice. Are we on that one? Sanctuary was overthrown. Okay, so going forward. And a host will be given over to it together with the regular burnt offering because of transgression, and it will throw truth to the ground, and it will act and prosper. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to the, other, or to the one who spoke, For how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering, the transgression that makes desolate, and the giving over of the sanctuary and host to be trampled underfoot? Um, so basically, there's a set time given to allow this all to happen. You know, it doesn't just happen, and then at some point God will get around to doing something about it. It's one of those times that God has, has put a cap on. Uh, and in fact, for doing it, there will be consequences for the ones who do it. You know, it's not that God had them do it. It's that 
they had been held back until that time, and then they were allowed to do it, but only for the time allowed. Um, and it says, uh, you know, cast truth to the earth, meaning it humbled the Torah of truth, meaning they weren't allowed to do, to do the, the things that they were commanded. So then I heard one holy one speaking, and it says one of the angels, and that angel said, um, let's see. And they have it, um, and this word is, says this word is like two. Where is it? Um, set time, oh, if a matter be hidden from you means a widower without a name, bereft of a name. The angel did not explain. Oh, he's talking about the fact that it was, he was speaking to someone not identified. And says to the angel who was speaking, shh, and issuing decrees. And a set time will be given for the daily sacrifice because of transgression. And the vision which concerns the daily sacrifice, that it should be discontinued, and the silent admonition will be placed in its stead. The silent admonition is an idol worshipped by the pagans, which was like a mute stone. So it's called in the book in many places. And from the time the daily sacrifice was removed and the silent admonition placed, or silent abomination placed. So the abomination of desolation, meaning it was replaced with, you know, a pagan statue was set up there. Um, and let's see. To, to make the base of the sanctuary and the host of heaven, which he cast down to the earth, to be a trampling for his feet. And um, da, 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 da. so so anyway, say, basically saying you know a cap was put on it, but this was what was allowed to happen. Abomination was put in there. Uh, they they uh, you know they they trampled on the temple. And he said to me, for twenty three hundred evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. So the evening and morning, 2,300. Um, let me see. Uh, one reference is to Zechariah 14.7. It shall come to pass that at evening tide it shall be light. And we are confident that our God's worth will stand forever. It will not be nullified. Try and see. Well, this, and this, that's what I'm trying to kind of scan through this. It's kind of long. I don't want to read it. But um, they have, namely, that has the numerical value together, 574, 2,874. Um, and the Holy Ones will be exonerated. So the iniquity of Israel shall be, uh, expiated to bring an end to the decrees of their being trodden upon and crumbled since they were exiled in their first exile to Egypt until they be redeemed, redeemed and saved with a perpetual salvation by our King Messiah. And this computation terminates at the end of 1,290 years from the day the daily sacrifice was removed. That's what is stated at the end of the book. And from the time the daily sacrifice is removed and the silent abomination placed, it will be 1,290 years and no more, for our King Messiah will come and remove the silent abomination. The daily sacrifice was removed six years before the destruction of the second temple, and an image was set up in the Halchal. And how now that was the 17th day of Tammuz. Um, 
set up an image. But for the six years that I mentioned, I have no explicit proof, but there is proof that the daily sacrifice was abolished less than a complete Shemitah cycle before the destruction, because Daniel prophesied about Titus. So basically, trying to see how they, here's where they get to the math. This is, this is what they say. Um, time commencing from the descent of, just tell that days. Hmm, hold on. Evening and morning 2,300 fits exactly with the time commencing from the descent to Egypt to terminate at the end of 1,290 years until the day that the daily sacrifice was abolished. 210, they were in Egypt. 480 transpired from the Exodus until the building of the temple. 410 years the temple existed. 70 years was the Babylonian exile. 420 years the second temple stood. 1,290 should be added until the end of days, totaling 2,880. Subtract six years that the daily sacrifice was removed before the destruction, for scripture counted 1,290 years only from the time that the daily sacrifice was removed. And you have the evening and morning and 2,300 added to the computation. Fortunately, is he who waits and re reaches the end of the days, 45 years, over 1,290 years. For we may say that the King Messiah will come according to the first computation, and he will subsequently, or subsequently be concealed from them for 45 years. Rabbi Alazar Hakair established in the concluding poem of the portion dealing with the month of Nisan, in the foundation of his song, six weeks of years, totaling 42. We may say that the three years that did not total a week of years, he did not count. Um, Midrash Ruth, that the King Messiah is destined to be concealed for 45 years after he reveals himself, and proof is brought from these verses. So, what's, if you, just an interesting thought on those numbers, um, if you, if you, add, it's, I mean, looking at the fact that that the um, the temple being destroyed in 70 A.D. by the Romans, there's there's kind of a window on exactly when Yeshua was born. He he wasn't born in zero. That was accounted backwards to about the time of his birth. And most people think there's about three to five years, you know, in either direction it could go. But if you, we know that he started his ministry in his 30th year, and it was a three-year-long ministry. And then if we were to add the 45 to that, it would take us almost to the second destruction of the temple from his birth. So that's, that's kind of an interesting, you know, looking at their numbers, it's just kind of an interesting observation to me. Um, one of the things, you know, that you get when you're talking about the different, different groups um, and, and where they, what they do with the numbers, um, you know, going to one of the, the end times prophecy things, it talks about, um, you know, they, they make the, like, two, approximately 2,000 year period of time between the first and second advents uh, of Yeshua being the church age, and that that gap is hidden in there, um, you know, taking you to the year 1948 when Israel became a state. That's where they count the years from the prophecy to, you know, from Messiah coming to Israel becoming, you know, it, 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 
they, they have different things that they think that that's speaking of. And um, that was 1948, yeah. It was kind of one of the endings, was a way of, of ending and reconciling it. And one of, the, one of the hard things with what's going on there today is that um, the, you know, the, the terrorism that, that's there surrounding Israel, a lot of it was initially funded by Germany because they saw it as a way to continue their effort to destroy the Jews when they were out of their reach. So they funded the people who were mad at them to keep that going so that they could c continue to kill them. And that's, that's how, you know, a lot of the, the current conflict really began and grew because if they hadn't been funded by anybody, a lot of it would have just died out and, you know, might rumble under the surface, but it wouldn't be quite the, the thing it is today. So, uh, Germany. Germany um, sent people, that, uh, that if you want to read a great uh, historical fiction series that talks about Israel becoming a state. Um, there, there's actually a couple of series. Brock and Bodie Taney are really great historical fiction authors. And they have a series called The Zion Covenant, which is talking about the six months leading up to the declaration of war in Germany um, before World War II. And then they have another book called The Zion Chronicles, which is about the six weeks leading up to Israel becoming a state and everything that happened there. And some of the characters from the first book go into the second book, and they've got you know, some compilation characters, but some accurate characters, people who actually were there doing things. Um, and it's, it's just really fascinating to read. A lot of the Zionists, a lot of the people behind Israel becoming a state were, were messianic. They, they, because they believed that Messiah had come, which is why Israel could become a state. And, and you know, the, the arguments against it, the anti-Zionist movement, a lot of it was because until Messiah comes, this isn't going to ever work. But when, then you look at the miracles that took place, it's just like, it just blows you away. It's, it was crazy. Um, you know, but again, like we talked about last time, is there meaning in one way and the other? Probably. But again, let's make sure we're looking at the second in light of the first and, and not replacing it with that or not, um, you know, kind of going, just doing a whole new thing. So, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. So, there's, seen um, that vision. Let's see. So, Daniel now, let's look at Daniel because he's going to interpret his dream for us. He's going to interpret his vision. And I always like to let the person actually cited in scripture doing the interpretation get to have the biggest say <laughs> on what they're saying. Uh, when I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. And behold, there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Ulai, because he was standing on the banks of the Ulai, and it called, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. So he came near where I stood, and when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face. But he said to me, Understand, O son of man, 
that the vision is for the time of the end. Okay, now, right there, that's where people go, see, it's all about the end times. But the end of what? <laughs> yeah, you didn't say that. You know, when you're talking about the temple being restored, the end of this time that he's having this vision about, the end of days, Let's see. So, and when he had spoken to me, I fell into a deep sleep with my face to the ground, but he touched me and made me stand up. He said, Behold, I will make known to you what shall be at the latter end of the indignation, for it refers to the appointed time of the end. Now, referring to the appointed time of the end, as we get going in Daniel, we encounter, and, and, and I've mentioned this before, but we encounter the time that's not the time. The yeah. time that's not the time. Then the time that is the time. Yeah. Okay? So the things about the time that's not the time and the second time that's not the time teach us about the time that is the time. Right. So that, that's, how, that's how I go into this. When he's saying it will teach you about the time, okay, Teach me about what to look for. Teach me about what I'm going to see. Teach me about what's going to come. And since Yeshua talked, however many years later, and all he and he references the abomination of desolation, which is part of the time, the first time that's not the time, and then he talks about a time that's not the time that will come, and then the time that is the time that will come. I'm thinking, he came in between those first two times that aren't the times. So what's similar about those times? Let's let's find these connections. Let's look at what and and you know when we when you look at what Yeshua said, he's talking about the things that are the same. So he says, "Behold, I will make known to you what shall be at the latter end of the indignation, for it refers to the so there's an indignation that refers to the appointed time of the end. So the end, the end of the indignation it's the time that's not the time. As for the ram that you saw with the two horns, these are the kings of Medea and Persia, and the goat is the king of Greece. Um, and Greece, coming from across the waters, fits the picture of not his feet not touching the ground. The Medes who had the one year of power before the Persians had a lot more power. Um, but there wasn't really like a war. They, they kind of were, I think, I think basically Persia just took over the Medes. And, and the king of the Medes was crowned the day that Belshazzar died. Okay. And then... He ruled for about a year, or the, the Medes were in power for a year, and then Persia was in charge. Yeah. And the goat is the king of Greece, and the great horn between his eyes is the first king. As for the horn that was broken, in place of which four others arose, four kingdoms shall arise from his nation, but not with his power. Um, and Which is what happened. When he died... His the, the kingdom of uh, that Greece was in control over was divided between his four generals. 
and and they each took over. They were sent out in different directions to to take over the land because it was so big. Um, so four kingdoms shall arise from his nation, but not with his power. And at the latter end of their kingdom, when the transgressions have reached their limit, a king of bold face, one who understands riddles, shall arise. <laughs> His power shall be great, but not by his own power. And he shall cause fearful destruction and shall succeed in what he does and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. By his cunning, he shall make deceit prosper under his hand. And in his own mind, he shall become great. Without warning, he shall destroy many and he shall even rise up against the prince of princes and he shall be broken, but by no human hand. Um, so 25, I'm going to, okay, um, I'm trying to look down to where we are. When the end arrives, uh, Rashi says, and the wicked of Israel in the second temple will be finished, a brazen faced person will rise. He is Titus. And his power will become strong, and not with might, but with smooth talk, as is explained at the end of the book. And he will destroy wondrously. Wonder upon wonder he will destroy. Um, and he will prosper and accomplish his desires, and he will destroy the mighty, many nations, and the people of the holy ones, Israel, who believe in the Torah. And, and through his intellect, he will cause the deceit in his hand to prosper. And because he is clever wherever he turns, and because he will prosper, he will hold on to deceit with his hand. Um, and he will grow larger. With guile and with smooth talk, he will destroy many who dwell with him in a covenant and in peace. He will speak blasphemously about heaven. This is the meaning of the dream written above. Um, and then without strength, he will be broken through a mosquito, the weakest of creatures, which entered his nose, um, which is how Titus died. Yeah, which is nasty, but what not very powerful, a mosquito. So, so saying here, with, uh, his power shall be great, but not by his own power, and he shall cause fearful destruction, and shall succeed in what he does, and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. By his cunning, he shall make deceit prosper under his hand, and in his own mind he shall become great. Without warning, he shall destroy many, and he shall even rise up against the prince of princes, and he shall be broken, but by no human hand. The vision of the evenings and the mornings that has been told is true, but seal up the vision, for it refers to many days from now. And I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days. Then I rose and went about the king's business, but I was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. So it's interesting to me that at the end of the vision, he was, he was sick. Now, whether that means, you know, and the idea that he lay sick, um, You know, because it looks, I, I've heard, and the reason that stands out to me is I've heard that, you know, when those who are gifted with prophecy, it makes you weak and it makes you, you actually get physically ill from going through it. But the interpretation here is he was pained because of the trouble and he, he was depressed. So it's more a sickness of heart that it was, he was downcast and he, he didn't know what to do with it. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, I've actually heard the first, I've heard that, you know, when you have dreams like this, you have to eat lots of meat because you'll be sick otherwise. And I just oh like, I know, I know. It's one of those things where when you go back, you, you know, when you, and I, at the time I was like, okay, you know, I didn't think much of it. But then over the years, I'm like, that was so crazy. Why, why would anybody say that? That doesn't even make sense. But it's because they, you know, the, and yet it's interesting because this is talking about him being weak and sick. And, um, you know, when you go to, to Paul talking to, in Romans about, you know, the idea of eating meat sacrificed to idols, a lot of people take that as just eating meat. And he says, so if it doesn't bother you to eat meat, but it's going to make someone else sick, um, you know, then, then don't eat it because of the weaker brother. But really what it's, what that's talking about is if the idea of eating something sacrificed to an idol makes them troubled in their spirit, then out of respect for that, honor, honor that in them. You know, you don't want to try and convince them to eat something that they feel uncomfortable about. So, you know, so take, I, I see how they got there, but it's kind of twisted and runs through a bunch of different unrelated things and makes me go, oh, why? You know? <laughs> so, so in the end times, you know, the, the end times Bible prophecy thing, he talks about, you know, that is Medea and Persia and Greece. Um, but they emphasize, you know, this is an end times prophecy, a yet future event. So it says, then the, so this is what they do. Okay. Um, and this is, this is uh, the KJVBible.org. So this is KJV only. This is the only truth. You know, they're very apocalyptic, very end times. So they say, first of all, the Lord God reiterates that this is an end times prophecy, a yet future event. Then the Lord God identifies the two horns of the ram as the kings of Medea and Persia, which would roughly indicate the land area from eastern Turkey and Iraq into Iran and eastward into Afghanistan and Pakistan. It is no coincidence that the conflicts in these lands are the current focal point of the daily news. So, so their idea is, their belief is that he says it's the kings of Medea and Persia, but he means today. That it's not, you know, it's not really, he's telling him not for back then, for, but for us. Um, politically speaking, Syria is currently siding with the Iranians and their Hezbollah segregates against Israel. Uh, following the pullout of U.S. forces, Iraq became unstable and is dominated by a Shiite government that is a puppet of Iranian sphere of influence. There is a building fault line between Shiites and Sunnis in the region, most notably precipitated by the conflict in Syria and subsequent rise of the Islamic State Sunni movement. Expect to continue seeing the unexpected in this region in the coming months and years. Now, Again, because we're looking at a time that's not the time, a time that's not the time, and a time that is the time, I think it is reasonable to say that there is something about the modern areas that, that we will see a correlation to. Okay? I think that is reasonable. There is always conflict in the Middle East. <laughs> Until Messiah returns, there will be conflict in the Middle East. Um, you know, so am I saying, no, it can't possibly be revealing that to us? No, I'm not saying that. I'm just saying 
Let's make sure that we understand what's happening now through the lens of what happened then and not run free with it. Um, so the king of Grisha, the site says, is a reference to the peoples immediately west and north of present-day Turkey, specifically the regions around Greece, Macedonia, and up into the Crimea and present-day Ukraine and the Balkan states. Some scholars interpret this king of Grisha to be a generalized reference to Europe and the Western world, but if we restrict our interpretation to a more literal one, a somewhat startling prospect arises, and the seeds of that prospect are found in the current European Union economic crisis in Greece. What would happen to Greece should the crisis there deepen and the Greeks leave the Eurozone? Besides defaulting on their debt and throwing Europe into an economic tailspin, such a possibility would precipitate a political rift between the Greek peoples and Europe and a shift into the Russian sphere of influence. There is a common strong religious bond between the Greeks and the Russians because these regions are bastions of the Greek Orthodox faith. And I'm not talking just about Greece or Russia proper. Um, Orthodox people, the Cyprus, the Balkans... Uh, there exists a strong possibility of a new political power block rising across this region and peoples, which would become aligned against the West and Europe for economic reasons, and against the Muslim peoples of Turkey and the rising Islamic forces to the East for religious and political reasons. There eventually would emerge one leading nation within that power block who could constitute the he-goat, who, who will be moved to attack the ram and crush the empire. So in effect, we have a prophecy of a future Grecian military atta machine attacking and bringing down the future resurgent Eastern Empire of the Medes and Persians. But then, this doesn't really take into consideration the fact that that he-goat horn is broken apart into four less powerful yeah. nations, or, you know, rulers, and and so, um, you know, so is that to say that that won't happen? It might. But I think, I, th I think that, and I think that what troubled Daniel, you know, if I might be so bold, is that if the prophecy, if, if the dream is saying that these things are going to happen, then those things are going to happen and there's nothing we can do about it. Which is part of why I usually fall to the side of not really being concerned about trying to map the future, you know, current or future geopolitical activities that would correspond to these things because I don't think those are the point. I think the point is what they do to Israel and what they do to God's people's ability to worship him according to the way he was instructed. And what they do, um, you know, to people individually and the corporate uh, ability to worship. Because he doesn't give... Daniel, these visions with this idea that, you know, when, there's, when the prophecies are given, when the actual prophets have came and said things, sometimes things were put off. Okay, it won't happen in your time. And there was always this idea of, but you could avoid this if you repent and return. And I think this is another key area where what we see in Daniel is different from prophecy. Okay, 
Um, and Daniel sees a lot of this, you know, a, a lot of the bigger things. It doesn't, ha it doesn't necessarily say who's in power when it happens. And it doesn't say, what, so is there room for stuff to be in flux if, say, some, you know, group is there that is, that is honoring God's people and, and God's instruction? And it, yeah, I mean, does he know it's already going to happen? Yeah, but I mean, it's just there's not like a, there's a time cap put on it, but within it, it doesn't say, and then after this many years, this is going to happen. And then after that many years, on this day of this month, that's going to happen. Okay, so when the prophets come and they're talking to the people and they say, this is what God says is going to happen unless you repent. There's the option and the opportunity to delay or avoid certain things. And there's the encouragement to the, to the remnant, but I see you, I know you, don't be afraid, I understand you're okay, I'm going to take care of you in the midst of this. We don't see any of that in Daniel. What we see is, hey, this is how it's going to play out. So however it's going to play out is however it's going to play out. We don't need to know who's going to rise to power and then how are they going to get the power and then what are they going to do with the power. What we need to pay attention to is what's going on with the ability to worship. How are the people being oppressed? What signs do we need to look for? Because rather than looking for a political leader antichrist person, we need to be on the lookout for the spirit of antichrist that is coming against God's people, that is coming against the ability to, to follow Torah, that is coming against the ability, you know, that, that makes it illegal to track the times and, and to, to pay attention to the new moon and to keep track of the calendar and, and to study Torah and to, um, you know, to do all of these things that God has commanded, when that becomes illegal, that's a big deal. Because there's been unrest in the Middle East for, since this time back in Babylon. I mean, it's not like this is an out of the blue. I mean, you, you could predict this without Daniel. You, know, you could look and go, well, obviously there's going to be unrest in the Middle East this year. You know, you know, right? And and if Messiah doesn't come next year too, you know, it's so it's it's when our focus becomes the geopolitical play out of these things. I mean, it can be interesting. You can spend a lot of time doing it. Some people will get some things right. Some people won't. It, it, I'm not saying it's a worthless endeavor. It can be really fascinating. But when we start trying to date the things that relate to Messiah's return, because a lot of that is what plays into the, oh, but we'll get out of here before that time, or let's, okay, so, but we can talk about it being horrible because we're pretty sure we're out of here here, or this won't apply to us, so it's okay that we make it this horrible, scary thing, but the horrible, scary, it's not, that's not in there, and so when you try and take these and you know, shove Revelation into it, and well, this is in Revelation is going to happen at this time, and this in Revelation, you're going beyond. You know, there are parts of it that you can. Like, can you say that the stars in Daniel and the stars in Revelation are Israel? Yes, because Joseph had that dream way back before this, and we know that that's how he that's how it was 
interpreted because of the previous dream of the wheat. That's a safe bet. But when you start saying, well, this is this country in modern time, this is that, then, you know, well, that, that dream with the animals, well, it's a bear, obviously it's Russia. <coughs> you, you've gone beyond. Might you be right? Maybe. Can you be dogmatic about it? I think you should hold back. And one of the, one of the things that I was, um, let me see if I can find it, because I, I wanted to comment on it. There's a, um, it wasn't in here, was talking about, it, it's, it was a comment on Chabad, and let me see if I can reconnect real quick, because it, it, I meant to pull that out, and I forgot to before I let go. Um, but it was talking about, and because, because the prophecy of what's going on um, in Daniel 8, ends up, it's a picture of what happens with Hanukkah. And it's a picture of, of that first destruction of the temple. In Daniel 8? In, da in Daniel 8, yeah. That's when um, the, the destruction of the temple, that then the Maccabees come and they, they get it back and they purify it. And there's references in the Hebrew to images of oil. And, and so it's, uh, it's a really beautiful thing. But there was, I'm trying to find this, this statement because I was looking frantically for something else and I saw it. But he was talking about um, the, the, the fact that prophecy, I wish I could find it because it was really well stated, mm -hmm. talking about is the false prophet who, who is put to death. And that those who claim to speak prophecy or interpret prophecy need to be very careful because if they declare that God's word is saying something it isn't, then it says they are cut off from him in the world to come. And like I said, is there any value in trying to look into things and figuring out the, the, the details of it. It's a fascinating endeavor. You can read some really interesting things and you'll come across a lot that you go, oh, that's interesting. But when you start declaring that that is what it is, maybe I'm just not that bold. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I'm just not so willing to say that something that Daniel was told to keep hidden, <laughs> I can speak so boldly on. I would rather say, I see some connections, here's some things. But when it comes to the actual important part of, of you know, worship of God being hindered, that's the common factor. That's what happens each time before the destruction, you know, at, before and at the time of the destruction of the temple, um, before the Maccabees. That was why they were studying in secret. That's the point of the dreidel. They pretended like they were gambling in order to study Torah because you could be put to death for studying Torah. Before the destruction of the temple in Rome, Rome's and early Christians or Jews and early Christians were being put to death 
You could not worship God openly. You could not study Torah. You could, if you were one of the, you know, if you were calling yourself a Christian but still willing to do all the pagan things, you could make it, but not if you were cutting yourself off from that. To me, that's the important thing. And that if we, because, and also because Yeshua doesn't say when he's talking to them about the end times, he doesn't talk about the geopolitical things going on. He talks about Rome and he talks about, because that's who's in, in charge there right then. Um, that's who they're already being persecuted by. But he doesn't say, and look for the geopolitical ramifications of the things that were discussed in Daniel's dreams. He says, when you see the abomination of desolation, know that it's time. So that to me, and, and what a lot of the end times studying and the trying to focus on the geopolitical and the Antichrist, if you're waiting for one person to rise up and declare himself God, you have probably missed a whole bunch of spiritually significant times prior to that. Just like it, it talks about the fact that six years prior to the temple being destroyed, they were not allowed to worship. So if you wait for the, you know, for that one significant thing, you've already missed the impact. So, so I kind of want to leave on that and we'll, we'll do Daniel nine next week. And, um, I hope you guys are enjoying Daniel. I, I really like Daniel. I, I was really, like I said, I'm always really hesitant to jump into these books of visions and dreams and prophecies because there's so much modern stuff going on around them that makes me go, oh, I don't want to unpack that. <laughs> yeah. But, but I, I'm enjoying it because it's, um, because it's some fascinating stuff. And it's history. The more I learn about history, the more I appreciate Daniel. Daniel and these things. You know, when I'm reading history to my kids, and I'm like, oh, that was the, yeah. And then it, yeah, he divided into four. Yes, it was under him. It was at this time. That's awesome. You know? <laughs> Before I really understood history, I was like, okay, so there's a guy, and then there's a leader, and then this country comes in, and all right, okay. Because I remember when I was growing up in Louisiana State, I saw some kids, they had a history book and they had a Bible. And I was like, wow, you meant to read Bibles here? Yeah. You know, and I said, no, uh, we're taking a course ancient history. Uh huh. And we have to learn the Bible. Yeah. Well, actually, actually, the best ancient history class at Louisiana State University. That's interesting. I took an ancient history class, but it was specifically tailored to the Bible and parallel stories with it. So I took my Bible that way. Well, I think that you can actually get some of the best biblical study outside of the theology departments. Mm -hmm. at, at your average university. The best yeah. course I had on the Bible was in the English department. Yeah. Um, because at, at the way he did it, he said you, when you approach a book to study it, you know, yeah. in English studies, you take the book, you basically, you, you, you embrace and accept what the book says it is. 
you know, this is, you know, I am an ancient folklore. Okay, I'm going to read you like an ancient folklore. I am a history book. Okay, I'm going to read you as a history book. It has to do with genres, which is important when studying the Bible because not every book of the Bible says, I'm a prophetic book. You know, <laughs> it says, I, I'm the history of this. I'm the story of that. Um, and so when you look at the Bible, it says it is the word of God. And so the question was then asked, if we accept that and read it, what does that mean? What does it mean if this is true? It says it's true, so let's look at it. And, and it was a great class, you know, as opposed to the New Testament class I took in the theology department that was all about how to show that nothing in the, in the New Testament was actually correct or true or stated that it was true or, and, and you know. And at the end of the class, and I skipped several classes because I knew I would get into it with the professor. At the end of the class, he, he thanked me because we had to go through and, and, you know, say what we had learned from the class. And it was heartbreaking to me because so many people were saying, oh, I learned that everything I was taught about the Bible was crap. And I learned that nothing, you know, that all these things, that Jesus didn't really do miracles. And, and I was sitting there and he got to me and I said, I learned that there is way more heresy out there actually being taught than I ever really imagined. <laughs> and he, he laughed and he said, I actually have to say I appreciated having you in this class because you challenged me and I would have been even more liberal had you not been here. And I said, I cannot possibly imagine what that would look like. <laughs> Dang. <laughs> so we smiled at each other and that was that. I was like, oh my gosh. You know, there I'd look at what the topic for, for that day was and go, I just can't hear him talk about that. I'm going to get plus because I don't want to be there for that. I will, it will make me weak in my spirit. I will be spiritually ill if I go to that class. So I'm going to stay, stay away, do all of us a favor. Yeah. <laughs> wow. So, you know, it was, it was very interesting, but I think that just, I, and I, but I kind of think that that's almost the opposite side of the same idea of being so literal and so um, like I'm walking fast. <laughs> so let me bless you all, and we can stop the recording. But may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make His face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord turn His countenance upon you. May He grant you His peace. Amen. <laughs>